Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined as always by my co-host, David Roberts. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Hello and welcome to Permission to Be. I am your host, Becca Epley. Joining me today is my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. We are honored to have with us Lynn Tonstad, and she is not only a professor at Yale, but a published author, and I hope you all have already heard of her work, but if you haven't, um, her most recent book was or is Queer Theology Beyond Apologetics. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, um, we've already warned Lynn about this question. I know we don't do it every single episode anymore, but uh, the the longtime staple icebreaker question of the Permission to Be podcast uh, is something like this. <laughs> it's it's when, um, when, you know, whoever we're interviewing, when their work proliferates to the point that it finally catches the attention of Hollywood. And, and many of our guests are anti-capitalist or kind of progressive or subversive mm-hmm. or sort of revolutionary or radical in the nature of their politics or theology. And so there's a certain irony to, to kind of the capitalistic machine then seeking to appropriate their work for, um, for their own profit. But all of us have to put food on the table. We have our price, so to speak. And so when that happens... Inevitably, because Queer Theology is an incredible book. It's been a huge blessing to my ministry. I'm really excited. If you haven't heard of it, now you have, go buy it and then come back and listen to the episode while you're reading it. But anyway, anyway, when all of that happened and Hollywood comes and they send Lynn an email at her Yale email address and say, hey, we want to buy your life rights. And it's ridiculous that that's what they call it, but that's what it's called. It's called life rights. When they buy your life rights, who, if anyone, if no one, but who would play Lynn Marie Tonstad uh, in, I don't know, it could be a movie, an HBO miniseries, a graphic novel. It doesn't, I guess it doesn't even have to be film. It could be a graphic novel, but um, who, if anyone, have you envisioned for this, for this coveted role? Well, I, I have an intense desire never to be on television um, or <laughs> in, in basically any visual uh, media. I, I have been in an artist's work that he as as part of a triptych of works he recorded um me talking for 20 minutes about what a queer heaven would be like interesting and i have been able to bring myself to watch approximately 10 seconds okay. of the work <laughs> but i was thinking if one were going to do and it would definitely be an hbo miniseries if one were going to do an hbo miniseries on queer theology or something like that. One of the people who would need to be in it is a um, performance artist slash cabaret star named Justin Vivian Bond. Okay. Who's one of the um, sort of pioneers of uh, um, non-binary terminology and is maybe the reason why the prefix mix, MX, has now entered um, at least, I wouldn't say quite common usage yet, but but somewhat. 
And Viv is an amazing performer, sort of Mm. singer, and used to be part of this very campy duo called Kiki and Herb that was a big influence on sort of queer performance practices for many years. So that's the person who should be in the thing that I will definitely not be in. (laughs) Okay. All right. That sounds really awesome. So that's a great answer. Check out the YouTube. Uh, She has a bunch of stuff there. (laughs) Yeah. So Lynn has both successfully answered the question in a very profound and interesting way, while also identifying herself as the Adam Driver of theologians. <laughs> if, if no one doesn't understand that reference. I would take Adam Driver. I would definitely take Adam right. Driver. <laughs> Adam Driver is like pathologically adverse to watching himself. Famously recently was in an, uh, an NPR interview. I don't know if it was for Star Wars or Marriage Story or one of his recent films. And the the, um, the host tried to get him to listen to or watch his own performance. And he just got up and walked out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I appreciate the definitiveness mm-hmm. of that move. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, mm-hmm. um, yeah. so I'll kick off uh, a more serious question. Just to give listeners some context, Lynn is uh, one of my favorite living theologians. Uh, if you're a watershed person, you might not know it, although I do try to cite my work uh, when I'm preaching. But Lynn is a oft-quoted voice in any sermon that I have preached. Mm-hmm. And um, Lynn, your book, Queer Theology, I think is provocative because for a number, any number of reasons, quite a few actually, but even in the title – in the reference to apologetics, because Becca and I are part of a church wherein uh, a huge reason a lot of people come to our church, Watershed uh, in Charlotte, is because they are searching for a spiritual or faith community that is fully inclusive and affirming of LGBTQ persons, which is historically not the norm, evangelical, mainline, or otherwise. And one thing I think is really interesting about your book is, and, and please clarify or correct if I'm framing this badly, but you're sort of, if not against, at least bored of or kind of over apologetic arguments for why that should be the case. So, you know, rehearsing the clobber verses over and over again, or trying to prove or demonstrate that the Bible, contrary to historical belief, is actually, in fact, affirming, and we've just been reading it wrong for all these years and stuff like that. You don't find that argument at least interesting anymore. And queer theology kind of kicks off with you explaining why. So first off, tell me if I rendered any of that poorly and and correct me. And then after that, like dive in from there. Tell us a little bit more about where you're coming from from that. No, that's I, that's exactly right. And okay. I, I'm both bored and against apologetic arguments at this <laughs> point. So um, that's a more than mm-hmm. one thing can be bad at once, but at one thing can be bad in more than one way at once as well, right? <laughs> um, and But there are reasons for that, that I, I think, I, I understand why people find themselves wanting apologetic arguments, arguments that say, hey, it's okay to be Christian and queer. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely understand that desire. I know for many people, it's a desire that remains very, very strong. I, For me, the starting point is it is okay to be Christian and queer. Mm. Given that that is mm. the case, 
what do Christianity and queerness have to say to each other? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm reluctant to distinguish them in that way, of course, um, mm-hmm. because that's a little bit of a false distinction, but, but just for purposes of, of, of uh, conversation. And, you know, one of the reasons I came to the, the conviction that apologetic arguments are not the right or, or interesting strategy to use for thinking through the relationship between Christianity and queerness in a more um, theologically sophisticated and 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 we might even say spiritually compelling way actually mm-hmm. is that uh, you know you mentioned that many people come to your church seeking uh, the affirming and inclusive aspects of it and in my experience and in the experience of many people I know and love you look for apologetic arguments only after your mind has changed on this question mm-hmm. and minds change because of loved ones friends yeah. relatives mm-hmm. people that you love and you find yourself completely unable to continue thinking in the ways that you had thought Absolutely. about sexuality mm-hmm. and then okay sure then you might look for apologetic arguments, and and one of the one of the functions they have is to confirm that that change of mind has some validity. Mm-hmm. I I understand that, and I, I I can see the value of them functioning in that regard. But the apologetic task in this regard has been going on for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, we're 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 you know about it depends a little bit how you count, but we're somewhere between seventy and a hundred and. 30 years into it or something like sure, that. Sure. And, uh, you know, there have been a lot of interesting, uh, at least at the time, interesting arguments and speculations about what some of the language um, that is often, you know, contained in the, in the so-called clobber passages that you mentioned, what that language means. There's been a lot of reflection on the difference between ancient Mediterranean organization of gender and sexuality mm-hmm. and the way that, you know, we understand and experience ourselves today, whether we like it or not, right? The mm-hmm. regime of sexuality, the sort of the way that we organize sex and gender it, it forms us at a level that is prior to our ability to to sort mm-hmm. of resist or, or pick up the bits that we like and the yeah. bits that we don't like. So, and and there's been there's been reflection on this, and I talk a little bit, you know, in the in the second chapter of queer theology where I rehearse the. I think it's basically all the apologetic arguments sure. that I know of, at least in passing. There there are there are a couple of them that have some theological interest. But in general, apologetic arguments tend towards a kind of proof texting. Mm -hmm. They tend to focus on only one aspect of the question uh, Mm -hmm. about the relation between Christianity and queerness. And it's specifically which forms of genital Mm -hmm. contact are licit. Mm -hmm. And they take questions of queerness out of their social, political, and economic structure and put them into this sort of unifaceted, this the one aspect of your person that you sort of need to have justified in this way. Mm. And I, I worry theologically about the thinness of reflection that comes from that. Yeah. And I worry politically about the the sort of relative uh, conservatism, the relative narrowness mm-hmm. of fighting only for church recognition of vowed same-sex partnerships, mm-hmm. which is the primary direction mm-hmm. that apologetic arguments have been used. Yeah. There have been, you know, there have been some attempts to think more widely than that, but mainly that's been the sort of uh, impetus. And in a world where we're facing 
climate change mm-hmm. and eco-fascism and mass migration and, you know, an intensification mm-hmm. of vivid, open racism and ethno-nationalism and, you know, capitalism ending the world. Right. <laughs> we have got to be able to do better than this. Yeah. And especially if the investment either in Christianity or in queerness, and again, I'm separating them in a way that I don't actually accept, that investment has got to mean something more than, hey, it's okay for you to be with your partner. All right. Well, I think we got what we're looking for. Like, Lynn, thank you for your time. That was great. (laughs) No, seriously, that was um, that was that was that was perfect. That was very clear. You hear it, church? (laughs) So one thing that I th- uh, so an example it's actually not from queer theology it's from it's from your prior book God and Difference which is a little more academic for those listening at home who might be uh, tempted to buy it you should buy it it's going to be a little more expensive but the my favorite chapter in that book is chapter seven about apocalyptic ecclesiology and I do want to circle back hopefully if we have time a little bit later uh, to that chapter in particular but I feel like everything you just said is really really well illustrated by the cultural example that you use at the beginning of that chapter you're recounting a I think it's a commercial almost, or some sort of promotional mm-hmm. advertisement uh, from an organization, uh, Believe Out Loud. And basically, within the within the commercial, uh, there's a I think it's a lesbian couple who have they have a son, and they come in, and it's kind of this kind of cliche scenario where they walk into this church. I think it's more of like a mainline congregation, and they're walking in, and people are staring at them and looking at them, and maybe even you know kind of you know, scooting so there's not room for them to sit next to them. And all of a sudden, the minister says something like, everyone's accepted or we're all included or something like that. Mm. And then magically, attitudes change and everyone's smiling and so on and so forth. And it's easy to kind of take for granted that that's beautiful, but the reality is it nothing really changed. It, it, it is just kind of the existing system or paradigm got just slightly bigger to include like one more category or kind of taxonomy of identity and it does nothing to mm-hmm. inquire about or critique or or discuss um you know kind of the basic assumptions of identity and division and so on and so forth that kind of inform our our present you know reality and so on and so forth and so i don't know the first time i read that i was like oh wow i never even thought of it in that you know in those terms like i just you know you know i've kind of just taken for granted that the existing paradigm is good it just needs to be a little more inclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I rewatched that spot, which is a fundraising spot, a while back uh, for some reason, and it is it it is exactly as you say. It's too perfect an encapsulation. The words the minister says are "welcome everyone," and it's in this incredibly mm-hmm. sort of self dramatizing manner, like "watch me do mm-hmm. the Jesus mm-hmm. thing." And there's something about that self-congratulatory smugness that ended up really setting off some of the concerns that are, are in the chapter of God and Difference that you referenced, which is probably also my favorite as well, and, and, and that have motivated my work since then. I think for Protestant reasons that it's very dangerous mm-hmm. to believe in your own goodness in certain mm-hmm. ways, because yeah. believing in your own goodness can allow both a lot of violence to go unnoticed mm-hmm. and a lot of violent practices to go sort of almost justified mm-hmm. in a way because I'm I'm good this is good so my sort of the way that I'm the the antagonisms that I'm bringing 
are, are sort of concealed in a variety of ways under a kind of cloak of, uh, and, and I think that minister, obviously the actor playing him, right? I have no idea if he's a minister in real life or anything like that, but the way that he stands there and sort of the, the sensibility or almost the energy of the scene is this sort of mm-hmm. watch us be amazing. Mm. And I would love churches to be amazing. I would love Christians. I imagine we we all share this, seeing Christians out there doing the work, mm-hmm. taking risks for justice, mm-hmm. going outside the gates where Jesus is, right? Mm-hmm. I would love to see mm-hmm. that. That is not an example of doing that kind of work. Mm-hmm. That is an absolute minimum. You know, to say in church, welcome everyone, mm-hmm. you, you are not even church if you don't have the capacity to say mm-hmm. that. Where two or three are gathered in my name means a thing. And one of the things it means is that anyone can gather. And so to, to present it as the, as the spot does, as a sort of culmination, right, of, you know, watch Christianity in action, watch it do what it has to mm-hmm. contribute to our world today. I will say, I, I, you know, this is the irony of this kind of thing because mm-hmm. this is Protestantism, right? It, it fills me with a righteous anger, right? And then I want to be invested in my own goodness, and I want to bring some, you know, I want to bring some antagonism to this situation. But I also think, in a in a much more serious way, right? Or not much more serious. Uh, that that part's extremely serious as well. But I also think just that. We would be wasting a lot of energy and a lot of parts of our life if the ways that we thought about gender and sexuality and about queerness in particular, using that as a catch-all term, I know not everybody's comfortable with it, but if we're going to spend this much time thinking about those questions, and I, we clearly are, mm. that seems evident, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. then maybe we should act as if they have some real significance. And acting as if they have some real significance, mm. again, gets back to the point that you just made, mm-hmm. that in, in, in the sort of the straightforward welcome everyone scenario, everything else stays untouched. No practices change. The church, in a sense, doesn't, you know, go out into Mm -hmm. the street. It simply sits there and is happy that somebody came to it. Mm -hmm. And and that just is not, that's not a model that for me uh, has a lot of uh, theological value. And it's definitely not a model that speaks to the possibilities that some of the opening up in, in gender and sexuality, I think the sort of transformative possibilities that opening up these arenas um, can have. Yeah. The quote from the chapter that I think captures this kind of really succinctly, um, and this is one that I have quoted in a sermon before, it says, willed extension to others of a privilege already enjoyed oneself leaves ethics in the hands of the powerful. And just yeah. really clear this idea of like, it, it, it. we feel really good if we're just kind of saying, oh, you know, um, you go on to say, uh, you know, Jesus doesn't say, you know, Jesus says, you know, the, the first will be last and the last will be first. He doesn't say, you know, the first or the last will have all the privileges of the first, or I don't remember exactly how you say it. You say it much better than I just did. But, um, but yeah, it's so easy. I used to come to this all the time. It's kind of so easy to think that, you know, radical inclusivity is just, I don't know, more seats at the table. Mm-hmm. But this also sounds in part like a symptom of whiteness, a mm-hmm. symptom of superior class, a symptom of those who are more on the side of the oppressor than the oppressed. And so, you know, with, we're checking our boxes. We're going to, it's all presentation. And which is what the 
United States was created upon. And this is what we've built as a nation. And I would be curious to hear this passage had the perspective of, a, of someone from a marginalized um, community. And just to kind of to frame that, I mean, I mean, so, so Lynn's at Yale, you know, and some of her colleagues, you, you know, work alongside Willie Jennings, who's, you know, one of the most renowned kind of um, theologians mm. speaking into anti-racism and things like that. Uh, you work alongside Catherine Tanner, who's written about capitalism. I mean, Lynn, you've written about capitalism. Willie's written about capitalism. But capitalism is in the title of, of Catherine's books and stuff like that. And so I think it'd be really easy. I think kind of maybe the default is to think, you know, maybe maybe you're a prospective seminary student and you're thinking about, oh, maybe I'll go to Yale. It's Yale, you know, and it's like, oh, they have a great race scholar in Willie Jennings. They have a great, you know, class scholar in, in Catherine Tanner. They have a great, you know, gender and sexuality scholar in Lynn Tonstad. And yet I think all three of you would say these categories are inseparable. You know, you talk about in, in, in queer theology how mm. um, really you can't, you know, kind of navigate some of these gender categories without thinking about the class elements. You know, I think the same could be said for, you know, for race as well. So, so yeah, so talk to us about that. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I, I just had dinner with Willie last night. So it was, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a t- you know, I, we're, we're in the, I won't go into the reasons why, but we just had a meeting of the entire mm-hmm. uh, theology we're doing admissions, right? Mm-hmm. There's doctoral admissions mm-hmm. that are happening. I guess I'll just say that. But um, so we had a meeting yesterday with the entire theology faculty, which also includes Benjamin Valentine, who does Latin theology, Mark Heim, who is comparative mm-hmm. Christian, uh, Buddha, primarily Christian mm-hmm. Buddhist mm-hmm. Uh, studies, Ebony Marshall Terman, who's you know one of the absolute most superstar womanist ethicists, theoethicists working today, mm-hmm. Chloe Starr, who does Asian Christian theology, yep. uh, especially Chinese, and Marisa Wolf, who does you know faith and and life and, and sort wow. of uh, flourishing in that. And I just looked around that room and I thought, I cannot believe these are just my sort of ordinary day-to-day colleagues. And one of the things that's so exciting about that is, is what you were referring to in the sort of comparison with Willie and Catherine, which is that the way theology is approached at Yale right now uh, is uh, with a sort of th- a, a, a commitment to what we might think of as very thick theologizing in conversation with very complex engagements with things that are going on in the world. Mm. And there are differences of emphasis among us in terms of that engagement with things that are going on in the world. That's absolutely right. But we also recognize and try to work alongside uh, or, or sort of within exactly the kinds of overlaps that you were describing. You know, there's been a lot of work recently talking about how. Um, one of the things that was taken from people who were brought as enslaved persons to the United States mm. is even the possibility of something like what we might think of as gender normativity mm. or sort of proper gendered behavior, being a good woman, being a good man, that that whole sort of possibility is is one of the things that is taken away, along with, of course, access mm. to some of the um, forms of reproductive continuity, you know, knowing your ancestors, mm. knowing where you come from in a variety of ways. All of that was taken from the people who were brought here as enslaved persons. And that taking has continued in so many ways since, the yes. sort of Moynihan report type of thing, you know, the the stereotype and the sort of extreme stigmatization of people on, on social assistance, etc. The association of um, 
you know, a kind of uh, improper genderedness, mm-hmm. you know, sort of uh, women who are too dominating, you know, et cetera. Like all, all, all of these sorts of stereotypes are also ways of ensuring ongoing poverty among the people that they target. Yeah. So, you know, whenever we get into these sort of, mm-hmm. should we be more concerned about the economy or race or sexuality or climate change? I mean, these are all the same thing in a certain sense, right? Mm. They're not, but they're most powerful. The the most powerful damage that they do is overlapping and intensified among the least among us. Mm. And that intensification, which we often talk about in, in, in language of intersectionality, right? Mm-hmm. The way that different forms of stigmatization and minority, like being made into a minority in various ways, um, the, the different forms kind of play together and, and complicate the scene, and as, as it were. Um, that's just right. And so to think seriously about any of these things, I think we have to you know, none of us is going to be able to do the work alone. None of us is adequate individually to, to these to these problems. But we're all going to need to try real hard to think from our own specialties into the sort of effects uh, of, of how these different forms of discrimination and violence and injustice, how they play out uh, in across different arenas. And, you know, I did a couple, I'm my mother's from Iraq. My father's from Norway, and I grew up in Norway. Okay. And I've been going back. Th- my family's still there, and so I've been going back there a bit more and, and giving talks and mm-hmm. doing seminars and things like that. And you know, I had a couple of encounters. Uh, one in particular with a, a very. I was doing a talk at Pride in Oslo last year, and a very very sincere pastor in the audience asked me after this long discussion with with some other activist people and so on around these issues but what about you know what about my parishioner who just doesn't want to undo capitalism or do any of these things and simply wants to get married in church aren't you being sort of you know dismissive of that person's desire and you know isn't it my pastoral duty just to give them what they want and you know (laughs) We were basically out of time, so I didn't say any of the things I I wanted to say, or at least not most of them. But absolutely no, that is not your pastoral duty. Your pastoral duty is to work to open up, to be in conversation with people, to see that, to, to, to sort of narrow Christianity and justice questions to who's going to get married where. It, it, it just it, it boggles the mind that you can have yeah. the literature of, of the Bible and the histories of experimentations and radically alternative ways of being, that you can take that history, you can take these words from Paul about the form of this world is passing away, you can take this language of the old order of things is ending and say, and what this means is that we should <laughs> properly regulate who gets married in church. It, it just... <laughs> I'm speechless, right? <laughs> right, right. So to go down a slightly different track, Lynn, I am curious about you personally. Like, what brought you to this point that drove you to these deep theological pushing into, pushing into the apologetics? Like, what was the part of you that, I don't want to use a cheesy word, but like, where was the passion? What drove that? So I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. And I don't know if you know, many people don't know much about them. They're a a sort of, you know, among the many sort of um, 
Protestant-ish, but in a narrower way, uh, sort of denominational or church or, or even religious groups that arose in the United States in the mid 19th century, mm-hmm. when there was sort of this fervor of utopianism and mil- you know millenarianism, mm-hmm. sort of expectation of, of something radical happening. And the Adventists, of course, are the people who invested very, very heavily in the idea that Jesus was going to return uh, on October 22, 1844. And, you know, um, he did not, as it turned out. And uh, so, of course, that day is known uh, as the Great Disappointment (laughs) for obvious reasons. And Adventists, so so Adventism, without going into too much detail about it, it had, because of this sort of young history, knowing that it didn't really have the sort of August legacy that other uh, Christian groups did, we were brought up with a very, um, a very clear sense that it's your responsibility to search out the truth for yourself. Mm. That, and that, that, is, that, that that's a task and it's a duty and it's laid on every individual. You know, it's taking a mm. little bit the sort of principle of individual con- conscience to an extreme. And there's a lot that we could say about that sort of idea of this, you know, heroic, rugged individual searching (laughs) out the truth against, right? But when you're eight, you're like, that sounds amazing. (laughs) That's my job. Okay. You know, I am on it. I am marking up my Bible and we are doing the references, right? (laughs) I have an eight-year-old. Yes. (laughs) So exactly. Yes. And in my in my oh. early teens, I I had the sort of same assumptions around sexuality that most people brought up in in that degree of of sort of religious commitment do, and strangely enough, what changed my mind I've never been able to to quite account for it was watching a movie called Priest, and it was a movie where uh, I, I I am assuming it was a Roman Catholic priest. I've never dared to rewatch mm, the movie because yeah. it was so significant mm. to me that I. I don't mm. want any of my memories of it to be overwritten by some reason. No, that makes sense. But it's a it's a priest who's really, really struggling with his attraction to another man. And I just hadn't understood that LGBTQ people could be religious, could be Christian mm. in that way, could be struggling. Like I had, you know, I had just sort of imbibed the very standard line that, you know, oh, love the sin, not the, you know, hate the sin, not the sinner. And and when I saw the sort of passion for God and for the other man represented as it was in the movie, my mind changed. And I have never, the certainty of of that has never wavered for me for one instance. And that was before I had any sort of self-identification sure. in, in any kind of queer direction. I'd never even thought about it. You know, I was probably 13, 14 when this happened. And what that meant was that even though I came from a, a homophobic religion and a homophobic, to some extent at the time, homophobic family, that's no longer the case, uh, thanks be to God, nothing anyone said could touch this certainty, Right. So, mm-hmm. so you could say anything to me about sexuality. And I'm like, oh, how sad for you that you think that, right? This, this sort of sense that there's just something so wrong. Yeah. But the, the, the part about that that was really lucky for me was that even, I, even though I experienced a lot of things that you know, we would think of as, as homophobic in a variety of ways and so on, I never had the same level of alienation from um, hmm. church contexts that others did because mm. you could say those hurtful things, but they just didn't hurt me in the same way. And mm. I think that 
that was a real help for me. And then eventually starting to go the direction that I did, because it meant that there was, um, I, I didn't have the same amount of investment in the need to change people's minds either. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it just like, I, I wanted minds to change. I, I had, um, I, I had relationships that could not continue until minds changed and, and eventually they did. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, there was no negotiation around this question. And, and there's a kind of, um, I, I recognize the privilege of having a story like that, right? I, I recognize how lucky I was that this change yeah. happened when and in the way that it did so that I, I never had to ask myself, oh, maybe they're right, right? That was just never mm, a question. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what that meant then was that I was I was very interested in thinking around questions of, of theology and religion. I wasn't mm-hmm. planning to become a theologian, uh, but I did my undergraduate work at a Seventh-day Adventist school in Southern California. And, you know, it was all liberation theology and feminist theology <laughs> and political <laughs> theology of various kinds, you know. Yeah. And, and I very much had that sort of, uh, you know, again, a certain mm-hmm. kind of... Um, a certain kind of Protestantism around like, oh yeah, the church was in captivity for years and years and years, Constantinianism bad, you know, the history of, you know, thinking around these Greek metaphysical categories, all bad, you know, theology pretty much just hates life and hates the world and just wants to sit there sort of going on about, you know, complete arcane things that never make any kind of difference. And then I graduate from college and I think, well, you know, before I go on to do whatever academic work I'm going to do, I should spend two years just <laughs> figuring out what I believe. Two years should be more than enough, right? <laughs> oh, the hubris of the 21-year-old, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> so I got to Yale, and I very where where I did my MA and my and my doctorate, and uh, very quickly I was introduced to theologians who absolutely did not do theology as though it was hostile to the world, who absolutely did not do theology as though it was about you know just trial. La, 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 thinking about interesting technical questions. <laughs> I will say, though, in my intro to theology classes, I have lectured multiple times on why it's an interesting and important question how many angels can dance cliche, on the head of thin. Gazing. Just so we're clear. So, yeah. so I am into the sort of apparently very, uh, you know, technical. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, anyway, it's actually important, right? Um, but I encountered theology that was very much oriented towards world trends transformation and in but in conversation with the sort of main lines of christian history that up until then i had understood as fundamentally hostile to me to my existence and to the existence of a lot of what i thought was beautiful in the world and so you know you see where this is going by the end of my first semester i knew i was going to be a theologian yeah. and here we are 20 years later <laughs> mm. <laughs> That is an awesome story. And when you were talking about how you just knew, I just kept thinking about what mm-hmm. a divine gift mm-hmm. that was or is. Let me rephrase that. For me, in hearing your words, that gives hope because so many times, especially for those of us who might have grown up um, in the evangelical realm of things and then have to use the overused phrase of deconstructed our beliefs and are reconstructing them now there that's to me that's divine spark um and i really i appreciate you sharing that so lynn there's a there's i guess there's two ideas but in my mind they're kind of interconnected that i do think kind of piggyback off 
both what Becca just said, but also kind of your story that you just told. And one is, it's it's kind of the point of that chapter seven and God indifference, this idea of apocalyptic ecclesiology. And then tied to that, at least in my mind, mm-hmm. is uh, a notion, uh, kind of the notion that um, our identities or our being or, you know, kind of whatever word you want to use for that, they're not they're not fixed. They're not static. It's this dynamic thing. It's a becoming. It's uh, you know, kind of this thing that you know. The moment mm-hmm. you try to, the moment you try to put it in a box, it's like uh, it's already moved on. You know, almost like, you know, like like Jesus on the on the road to Emmaus. Once they recognize him, boom, he's gone. And um, so for me, that's that's at least at least at this stage in my own you know ministry and life and stuff that's the piece of your theology that's kind of the most pastorally or existentially live you know kind of this whole idea of that you can't you can't like make normative both the church but also being and and and, and kind of just the the interplay between kind of those two um realities or kind of whatever so uh, so can we riff riff on that for a second because mm-hmm. You know, and I think maybe the way that you make this really clear is kind of the way that you talk about the ascension, you know, and the way that, you know, the ascension, I just, uh, I, I spoke at a mm. seminary recently and I used that, I used that example because it's just, honestly, I don't think in my entire life, and this is an evangelical thing because we don't do any sort of lectionary so that we just pick and choose which passages we like. And if there's one that we can't think of a relevant way to speak on it, we just skip it. And so the ascension was always skipped uh, in my upbringing. And so your book was the first, mm. I was like, oh, I can preach on the ascension now. Perfect. Anyway, I'm I'm talking too much, but but yeah, I love that 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 kind of that radically new, never normative, never ultimate kind of approach, both to being and also to the church. Yeah, if if we take you know, however we understand the sort of mechanics of it, and there there are no mechanics of it. That's not how it works, right? But however we understand the mechanics of of creation, whatever it means when we talk about the world as fundamentally dependent on God in some significant way and, and, and fundamentally formed by God, mm-hmm. uh, how, you know, which you know, people, of course, parse in very many different ways. But when we talk about that, God created people in history, in time, in movement. That's just that's mm-hmm. built into the very structure of creation itself. And if we, if we sort of, again, if we try to escape from that, then we're declaring bad the world mm. that God declared good. And I, I'm not, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, the world of course means many different things, right? And, and, and so there are, there are senses in which I would mm-hmm. say the following sentence and others in which I wouldn't, but you know, the world is a home for people. The world is a home for humans and for many other creatures and many other living beings and non-living things, but it is a home and it is a place that exists in time. And it is a place in which nothing stays static. Absolutely nothing, right? In the entire universe, this is the order of reality. And if we're, again, serious about any of our claims about this reality being the reality that God makes forms and loves, then we've just got to go along with that in some sense, right? We, we, need, to, we need to be open to the even, I think, sometimes very, very painful losses, as well as possibilities that come mm. along with the reality of how this world is, is made. And, you know, the, there's something, I think, incredibly you know, people often think of religion as, as a place of comfort and security and so on. 
And I think for many of us who who have serious engagement with religion, Mm -hmm. it's so obvious that it is not that, that it is a place of of vulnerability Mm. and uncertainty and hope, very, very deep hope and and a kind of investment in the the promise of, you know, Mm. the ordinariness of the world precisely being its magic. A, a, a way of reading the world, right? Mm-hmm. If I was going to use technical theological language, we could talk about sacramentality, right? I'm not a huge fan of of, of some aspects of the way that, that these terms circulate theologically, but that's what sacramentality is about, right? Is that the world is imbued with magic in some sense. The world is imbued with meaning precisely in its ordinariness, in its everydayness. But it's not, it's also a place of deep deformation, Right Again, the form of this world is passing away. All of creation groans, longing for its deliverance. There's also a deep deformation that is happening around us. And that deformation often happens precisely because people know themselves exposed. They know themselves vulnerable. They know the dangers that face them. And that's really scary. And when you know how vulnerable you are in the world and you know how difficult life is, and life is hard for everyone Mm -hmm. in different ways, life is just hard, then you sort of, you set up these bulwarks, these these immobile sort of things, these, you know, you try to fix something. So you've got one safe thing to hold on to, whether it's the US-Mexican border Mm -hmm. or whether it's the belief that, you know, marriage is only a certain kind of form of human relationality and the one that God has, you know, particularly blessed or whether it's, you know, there's just so many places that you hold on because the world is a scary place that doesn't seem to provide us with the Mm -hmm. answers that we are, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever this means, designed to want, right? That we are answer-seeking creatures, whether you think that's because of the structure of our brain that is the result of, you know, millions of years of evolution, or whether you want to put some deeper meaning into that, mm-hmm. it, it, it just is the case. And and yet the, the thing about our questions is that they're always moving, right? The questions themselves move as mm-hmm. our lives move. And, and that's a deeply destabilizing process. And church is one of the places at its best where people who undergo that destabilization come together with others and experience, you know, communally that kind of destabilization. Mm-hmm. And that's where I do think there are really interesting comparisons to be made between um, Christian and queer experiments mm. in alternative forms of life. Because the in queer cases, mm-hmm. the destabilization is often forced on you in a very dramatic way. Mm-hmm. There's there's a sort of, um, you, you don't get to run away and escape it in a way yeah. that you might be able to do if in, in, in more majoritarian cases. But you know, church at its, at its best is also a place of that, right? Of people who have find, found themselves uncertain in the world mm, mm-hmm. and come together on that basis, uncertain, but with hope and desire, mm-hmm. a little confused like the disciples after the ascension, mm-hmm. not quite knowing where to go. And then yeah. maybe the spirit moves. If memory serves, I think in the last chapter of Queer Theology, uh, you you pose uh, kind of the, the image or the analogy of... Um, is a carnival, I think, in you know, kind of in this this kind of what is the future of queer theology, you know, possible trajectory of it. And you're not the first person whose work I've I've kind of studied or been influenced by to use that uh, carnival metaphor, carnival analogy. I don't remember who the first person. It might have been you who I heard it from first, but I've seen it again and again. But it's one that I've latched onto 
and I don't know, I don't know what it is, what sort of association I have with carnival, or even if I have the right, this, the association that you're referring to, but there's something about that metaphor that's both like liberating or comforting in a sense, but also precisely in kind of what you're talking about. But, kind of, you know, if you really think about carnivals, I mean, you know, sometimes they're scary. You know, there's a, there's a separateness to them kind of from the normal order of things. Often there's intentionally scary elements, fun houses, you know, you know, and things like that. There's a revelry to them. I don't know. It's a, it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a metaphor that I've clung to for the last couple of years. And, you know, in, in, in revisiting, in revisiting your book this afternoon to get ready for this, I was, I was kind of, you know, kind of pleasantly reminded, energized to, to see it again. I'd also say that at carnivals, there's freedom to be who you are. Mm-hmm. And it emits the scariness and the perceived scariness and the fear, because a lot of our fear is just this subconscious control. And for me, once I have been able to let go of the needing for some of the certainties that I had or expectations that I had put upon the church, there's a lot more um, peace Mm -hmm. in the unknown of the carnival. Mm -hmm. I like that. And I, I like the, mm. um, you know, your point that, that that being yourself and being afraid aren't necessarily contradictions, right? Because mm-hmm. to be yourself means also with all mm-hmm. with all our vulnerabilities and frailties and even, you know, uh, I will say it is certainly mm-hmm. in the first person, at least false. Mm-hmm. Um, being yourself is scary, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, yeah. but also yes. incredibly freeing. And mm-hmm. even even with the fear, right? The fear sort of comes along, mm-hmm. but it also changes its character because it's no longer a fear of being seen in the same way. It's it's no longer a fear mm-hmm. of hiding, right? That that sort of involves like, oh, mm-hmm. let me try and in it and and not managing, as you say, not sort of clinging to mm-hmm. again. And 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 instead yeah, just finding yourself open to the world and being in the world with mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. That that seems to be that seems mm-hmm. to be what life is is, oh, is yeah. best supposed to be. Very much so. Um, what does the word salvation mean to to Lynn Tonstad these days? The the two the, and they're the same theme in a way. They're that 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 guide my thinking here. God wills that the creature may live, and I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Mm. And so for me, those are, those are the places that, that I cling to in a certain sense. They're not uncomplicated places. Having life, willing mm-hmm. that the creature may live, it's not, an, it's, it's, it's not just a joyous thing. There's, there's also loss and, and suffering in that. But whatever salvation might mean beyond that, uh, I, I mm. don't know exactly. But I know that at a minimum, mm. it means that. Mm. God wills that the creature might live and Excellent. that you might have life and have mm. it abundantly. Yeah. So Lynn, thank you for spending time with us. Thank you. This has just been for me. I, I don't know how to describe it. Um, audience for you listening. Cause you can't see our faces, but there, I don't know for me, this has been in all the depth and some of the academia language, there has just been a real comfort in this conversation. And so I want to say thank you for that. On a more, I guess, technical note, if people want to find your work or to reach you, where might they do that? So the easiest way to reach me is by email, uh, lynn.tonstad at yale.edu. 
my books are available where books are available, but if they're financially prohibitive, something can usually be arranged about that in one way or another. And uh, yeah, I, I always love hearing from people who are um, either making use of, of mm-hmm. some of the work I've tried to do or potentially pushing back on it in various ways. Yeah. I, I love just being in conversation, um, mm. whatever form mm. that takes. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, We are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests and the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.